0: Performers know that there is no crazier place than backstage opening night. And a few years ago, before our first ever snap stage show, it's all chaotic, screaming, hollering, running around, but I'm cool as a cucumber, ice cold, ready, because I have something that no one else has. What is this thing, you may ask? Wow. Well, first understand that before this, my apartment burnt to the ground, fired from my job, totaled my car, girlfriend asked me to walk away and never turn around, and feeling pitiful. I complained to my buddy Ravi, and Ravi says, you deserve this, your spirit fire runs crazy, wrecks havoc. I sit here only from the goodness of my heart. I get angry with this spirit fire woo woo crazy talk. Dude, what should I do? I ask him seriously, cause Ravi knows stuff. He doesn't know nearly as much as he thinks he does, but he does know stuff. Bind your spirit. Command it to work for you and not against you. Spirit, your gin, spirit, projection, it's all just you. Gin like genie gin? Yes. But first you need an object. Choose well. This takes me a couple of days. I finally find what I'm looking for at a pop up flea market. In the bottom of a box of junk, the very bottom is an oil lamp figurine, golden, a magic lamp fits right into my hand. Ravi chuckles, fine, now hold it, be serious, intentional, imagine pushing your gin into the lamp. This is your power, your chaos, your force, your creativity, your magic, push it there. Tell it to make itself at home, make itself comfortable but it may only emerge when you want it to. In fact, it can only come out when you rub the lamp. We both laugh, but I'll be damned. This story I've been working out forever could never finish. I sit down, I rub the lamp a few hours later. I'm typing the words, the end. A friend asks if I can make her a piece of music, and I don't know how to do that, but I sit down, I rub the lamp, do the best I can, send it off, she loves it, says it's going into a show. Big interview, I rub the lamp, walk in confident, get the job, I want a million dollars, I rub the lamp, it doesn't really work like that, anyway. So I'm backstage before the first ever snap show, cool as a cucumber, cause I've got the magic lamp. Five minutes before showtime, I go to rub it to unleash the genie, but there's nothing in my pocket. And I go from chill to flipping out in five seconds. Ah, places. Four minutes till showtime, backstage, dark. I'm checking jacket pockets, my pants, and I'm crawling around on the floor. Where is it? Where is it? Two minutes, white hot, one minute. I feel a metal piece on the wooden floor. I snatch it up, rub it for all it's worth and run toward the bright lights. The show is magic. Afterward, I am so happy I reach in my pocket for the lamp and pull out someone else's car keys. Not my lamp at all. At least that's what my genie wants me to think. Today, from WNYC, Snap Judgment proudly presents the performers. Performers. Amazing stories from the people who bare their souls. My name is Glenn Washington. Lights, camera, action. Because you're listening to Snap Judgment. Today, we're traveling down to the borderlands to meet one of the hardest-working men to ever wear a mask. us I proudly present to you...
1: Lucha Libre is very um, alive. You get there, the ring is there, the chairs are there, music is going, cumbias and salsa. And the mascaras are 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 passing by to be sold. All of a sudden, lights go down and music gets up and the smoke comes out and it's lucha libre time. And then and people just scream their lungs out. For lucha libre mexicana, for the most part, there's no 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 predetermined like you're gonna lose or you're gonna or you're gonna win. Uh, everything is decided in the ring. I'm going to win because of my talent, or I'm going to lose because I don't have the talent.
2: Just like in the U.S., where we've got The Rock and Hulk Hogan, luchadores have stage personas. Lacer, El Hijo del Santo, La Pantera Rosa, the Pink Panther. Cassandra was the best wrestler in his gym, but he still didn't know who he was in the ring.
1: When I became a wrestler, I started like everybody else, with the mascara, with a mask, and uh, and my trunk, and my little wrestling boots, and that was it. That was all your gear. And, but I knew that I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't like it. I was like, yeah, it feels good, but this is not me. And then when Pimpinela came aboard, she's like, yeah, I've been there. So we related a lot. I just met Pimpinela into that Juarez at the gym. Pimpinella was very very skinny and he, he he's super tall and um, uh, you can tell he was from a low budget family he was struggling and i was like oh this is a new one new one on the block and then it, and then pimpinella would say like oh who do you, who do you think you are we never got along so good until we after we started wrestling each other and kicking each other's butts and that's how we just became like big, big sisters. You would have known just by seeing us or hearing us or that we were, uh, we had a different sexual identity. I was training in the gym and one of the old timers, he was very famous from here, came and and they were looking for an exótico in the biggest company that Juárez had at that moment, 1988, and guess who they picked? They picked me. Exóticos is like a a flamboyant uh, wrestler. Uh, Not necessarily an exótico has to be gay because there has been a lot of exóticos that are not gay, that are bisexual, or that that are even transsexuals. They were like the clowns of the circus. And that's what I didn't want. I didn't want to become a clown of the circus. I didn't want to become one that the people laughed at me. I want to become one that people applaud and recognize my talent in the ring.
2: Cassandra wanted to be a champion. He also knew that Mexico's three-time world champion, El Hijo del Santo, had said publicly that he wouldn't wrestle exóticos.
1: El Hijo del Santo has said that he wanted no, nothing to do with an exótico. Because one time, Rudy Reyna had the nerve to try and kiss him in the ring.
2: So, if he took the company's offer, he might never get to one of those big arenas. But this was his only choice join the company and wrestle as an exótico, or don't wrestle with the company.
1: You know that every luchador's dream is to wrestle in the big arenas and with the big companies. And that was my calling. So I just said, okay, with a lot. I was very scared, very nervous because I was gonna be an exótico.
2: After the recruiter approached Cassandro, he and Pimpinella decided to move to Mexico City. Moving meant bigger matches and better opponents. But they weren't going to get anywhere without a look.
1: The other exóticos weren't able to use makeup, no pantyhose, no bathing suits. They were just used like trunks or singlets. And when we got together and we talked about it, we said, what do you want to wear? I said, bring the feathers and the glitter and... Let's just bling bling ourselves a little bit more and we'll take it from there. If we're gonna be exóticos, let's do this revolution. Let's go all out, we're gay, and let's just be true to ourselves. And let's see how the audience and the promoters and everybody else looks at us. I was hit harder I was pushed down harder, and I was slapped harder, and I was spit on my face more times. I think that I had to do double the work that any normal male human luchador would do. Because first, I'm already labeled and tagged as a homosexual. Normally, the good guys are the ones that do all the great stuff, the flying, the, the the suicide topes and everything. We're not just jesters. We have this talent. We like to walk in the robes and fly outside the ropes and inside the robes and and do all these rolls and, and gymnastic stuff and then word got around that I was good, that I was um, respectful, that I was disciplined, and then it took less than a year, then the company said, we're gonna give you an opportunity with El Hijo del Santo for the championship belt.
2: Yeah, that El Hijo, the same legendary luchador who said he'd never wrestle an exótico. The promoter hand-picked Cassandro from a sea of newbie wrestlers to take on the three-time world champion.
1: And I was just like, oh my God, I'm getting a big chance with El Hijo del Santo, the biggest legend of Mexico. And here I am, an exótico from Ciudad Juárez. The match was gonna be January 28th, 1991. You know, in Mexico, the biggest uh, sport after soccer is lucha libre, so we had the press. And, And for the most part, a lot of them were like against me. Like, why would he do a championship match with El Hijo del Santo? Why can't they pick somebody else? And I was like, well, there's a freaking reason why they cho- chose me. And I'm gonna show you if you just let me do that match.
2: El Hijo del Santo never responded to the negative press. Some fans and reporters were calling for him to cancel the match, but he stayed silent.
1: That all got to me because it was a very happy moment in my career But in my emotional and in my life, then I started, like, not believing in me and putting doubt on myself.
2: One week before the match, Cassandro and Pimpinella went out to see a few Lucha Libre matches at the biggest arena in Mexico City. When they got to the stadium, the press ambushed Cassandro.
1: The, The question was, like... Uh, do you think you're fit for the f- for the match and they would scream stuff like that and and i think i i tried to put the best face that i could and i didn't say nothing and um when i got home in the bathroom I don't know what what triggered it or what happened, but I just knew that something was not feeling right. and when I stand up, there was a window right in front of me and there was a razor right there. And I don't know what triggered it or how how it happened. It's just one of those things that just happened. I ro- I I um put my arm up got the razor, put it in my mouth, cracked it open, got the knives out, and started cutting my wrist on my um, left hand, and I continued to cut in my wrist on my right hand. And it was like a slow process for me, because I still, <laughs> I'm remembering right now just everything, how it happened, and it, It was just a moment where watching the blood run was okay for me. And Pimpinella came in and he saw me and I was already sitting in the floor uh, with my hands bleeding. And he came in and got me and just um, carried me on to the living room. We called um, the doctor, and, you know, they fixed me, but I had some bandages on my wrist, and so I had to wear long sleeves, and I didn't like it, and, and I didn't want nobody to know, of course, but, you know, it, the the word was going to get around. And um so I decided, like, you know what? You're already down. Get up. Pick yourself up and go forward. Do it. The fight was on a Thursday, and it was... uh. in in the Arena Pista Arena Revolucion, in Mexico City, 8 p.m. And then going to the arena was just like, And when I walked in the dressing room, I remember I was like, I was shaking and I had taken Pimpinella with me because I said Pimpinella wasn't going to wrestle that night but I said Pimpy, you got to go with me come on you got to go with me you got to be at my corner you got to be my second and, and he's like alright I'll do it and he said look you're going to be okay do the best that you can don't let the people or the nervous get you here take a sip of this tequila and it will help you And then all of a sudden they go, okay, you guys, we're ready for you. And they go, Cassandro. And there we go. Cassandro El Exótico is the Liberace of the Lucha Libre, La Diva del Ring. Once they put that song on, I will survive. Ladies and gentlemen, Cassandro. And the doors open, that's my moment. I, 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 I come I walk out with my big long tail gown and people are like wow look at this guy and I have my makeup and the glitter and the bling bling and I'll do that cat walk. We start our match and and that's the time that you have to put every all your knowledge to work. So we start wrestling like doing one move after the other one, and then the people were just like, oh, wow, that is very pretty. And then I would shine, he would shine, and we started doing our moves, and that's how you get the recognition, because that's how you're telling them, see, I I know how to wrestle. This is is how I defend myself. In Mexico, uh, normally matches are three falls. And um, I picked them up on the third rope and put them on my shoulders and put them on a hold. I won the first fall, and then he won the second fall with a tope and I think the tapatia. When I would go to my corner, Pupin would, uh, would do air with a towel for me, and I hear the reaction of the people, which is very important because those are the ones that keep you going and then the third match the third fall is when everything goes to the oven like you gotta throw everything you know there but you're already tired though it just came to a moment where I couldn't go any more further but I knew I had done enough like to prove myself And I was like, okay. And once he pulled me on his um, de a caballo, on a hold that he's called, it's like a horse. Uh, I was, I was done. I was done. I could. My back was done, and I just tap out. And that was it. And then everybody was kissing my ass after that. All the m- reporters they were dumping on me. They were all like kissing my ass and, oh my God, that was great, good job, and all this. And I'm like, wow, are you serious? I felt good. I knew that I had done enough work to be recognized and to shut the mouth of all those guys that were trying to be the joy killers.
2: Cassandra went on to have an amazing career.
1: Uh, So I went from wrestling El Hijo del Santo in 91 and uh, winning the championship to winning it later on months after that match in November 29th uh, in Toluca uh, versus Lacer. And I get I get crowned as the first exótico to be the world uh, lightweight champion. And everybody was happy and La La Land was for me.
2: He became one of Mexico's most beloved luchadors. After two decades of professional wrestling, he was a cultural icon. The Louvre called Cassandro up in 2009 and asked him to reenact one of his favorite matches for Paris Fashion Week. He could pick any opponent he wanted. Cassandro looked back on 20 years of fighting, of fame, and he picked this match: his first fight with Elijo Del Santo.
1: And we do our matches, everything went well. So the next day, we we had three days off. And then I told him like, hey, let's go to the Eiffel Tower. Let's go hang out, let's have a talk. And he's like, yeah, let's go. And we were tired and went to have a cup of coffee. And I popped the question. <laughs> I'm like, hey, I'm curious. So how was it that you agreed to wrestle an exotico for the championship match? And he's like, what? I'm like, yeah. I'm curious, how, how did all this happen? He's like, you know what? Mr. Minus came and talked to me and he said, there's this wrestler, he's very talented. Would you give him a chance for the championship belt? And he's like, well, yeah, of course. Why not? And then they told him who it was, and it was me, and they said, well, Cassandro, he's from Juarez, but he's an exótico. And he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, no, 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 no. So he said, so when they told me that it was you, I went to some of the events where you were fighting, and I don't know, something was different from you. And I liked your rhythm, and and, and, and it looked like you have talent. I knew you were too new for me, but then I said yes. And then when we fought, um, I knew I wanted to wrestle you. And it was very beautiful. And then he goes, how did you feel about it? I said, no, you don't even know what I went through about it. He's like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? And then I said, I almost died before the match. He was like, what? Yeah. I started showing him my wrists. And he's like, what, Cassandrito? What happened to you? And you know what? We got to talk about it. And and then we just hugged and embraced each other. And he said, God damn, I didn't knew you went through all this stuff just for a championship match. I said it wasn't for a championship match. It was for my opportunity to come, to show off, and thank you because because of that match i know and i believe that my career took a hike and it's been the most beautiful thing
0: thank you cassandra for sharing your story with us on the snap Cassandra's got a lot of exciting things in the works, Snapper. he has got a book coming out, a documentary. Get in on this goodness. For all things Cassandra, visit us at snapjudgment.org. The sound design for that piece was done by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by Eliza Smith. When Snap Judgment returns, we take it all off. All of it. And Dave Chappelle's other half, when the performance episode continues, Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the performance episode. Today, we're exploring the magic behind the stagecraft. And for our next story, I'm super excited for you to hear it. It's from Snap Judgment Live. And you know we save you the very best seat in the house. And please note, this story does address matters of a sexual nature. Sensitive listeners should be advised. Get ready for Snap Judgment, live. She is the founder of the TMI storytelling event. Put your hands together for Gina Gold.
3: old there's a pimp that lives in my building and I hate him and somebody needs to do something about it he thinks that nobody knows that he's a pimp but I can hear him yelling at his prostitutes beating them up and I'm gonna take action because I have been watching this TV show called the secrets of Isis And Isis is a low-budget superhero and she fights local crime. So I decide I'm gonna be Isis and I'm gonna save the prostitutes. So I devise a plan. I'm gonna take a picture of the pimp in action. And then I'm gonna send the photo to the New York Times. And then they're gonna put it on the front page with a caption that says, there's a pimp in 5G. (laughs) And that's gonna set the prostitutes free and I'll be Captain Save-A-Ho. I grab a camera, and I wait till I hear the pimp out on the payphone. And I run out onto my terrace, and I say, Hey! Pimp! And he looks up, and I snap the photo. Then I duck down like a spy, and I crawl back into the apartment. And that night, there's a knock on the door. So I get out of bed, and I peep around the corner, and I see my mom opening the door to a very angry pimp. And he's got a prostitute on either side. And I think, "Uh uh-oh, I don't think my plan worked. And then he immediately starts in, and he says, bitch, Your daughter took a picture of me, and I want it back. Bitch, your bitch-ass daughter shouldn't be taking photos of me. I want it back right now, or my bitches are gonna hold you down and beat your ass. Bitch. And I was like, oh no, I'm not ISIS at all. And now my mother's going to get her ass whooped by a pimp. And then my mother, she pops herself up from five foot three to six foot eight. And she stood there in a red Afro wig and daishiki. And she said, I don't know what you're talking about. But take your hat, take your friends here, turn around, and get the hell away from my door. And don't you ever refer to my daughter as a bitch ever again. As a matter of fact, don't even look at her. And she got that, like, exorcist thing going in her voice. She said,
4: don't even look at her.
3: (laughs) And the pimp wasn't expecting it, so he kind of jumped back. And then he tried to save face by saying, yeah, well, don't let me have to come up here again. And my mother said, get the hell away from my door. And then she slams the door, and she turns around, and my shoulders go up. I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be really bad. And my mother looks at me and she says, don't take pictures of pimps. (laughs) So when I got older, that pimp was just one in an assortment of creeps. I, I was constantly being harassed by men all the time, and I never did anything about it. And by the time I got in my early 20s, I was tired of it. So I packed my bags, I moved to California, and I decided that I was going to take a little bit of that power back. my go-go boots a long black wig and some false eyelashes and I took my place on the stage at the Lusty Lady in San Francisco Beside my fellow dancers in Saoirse Velveeta, Cheese Whiz, and Lotta Latex. And I, behind glass, finally felt the power and control that I always wanted. And I watched their desperate eyes following me, and they were looking at me. And as I teased them, I felt myself getting more and more powerful. Behind that glass, who's in control now? But then, when my shift was over and I wasn't behind glass anymore, I was no longer in control. That night, I went home from my shift and I got on the BART train And this tall white man got on the BART train with me. And he locked eyes with me and he wouldn't look away. And I was scared because we were the only two on the BART train. And when I got off in Berkeley, he got off. I walked through the BART station and he was right behind me. And when I came out, it was really dark in the parking lot. So I tried to lose him in between the cars. So I'm walking, I'm weaving in and out of the cars and I look and I see that he's right behind me. So I break into a run and I start to run for the stairs and I think if I can make it to the top of the stairs, maybe he won't be able to get to me. And I get to the top of the stairs but then I see he is right on my heels. And just then, a carload of young black men come by and they say, get the hell away from her and he runs away. So the next day, I march into the lusty lady and I say to Pat, the manager, look, Pat, um, I really need to work day shifts from now on because someone followed me from the BART station. And she said, okay, calm down Isis. Now, (laughs) what did you do when he followed you? And I said, I didn't do anything. I don't have any control over people following me. And Pat said, of course you have control. As a matter of fact, I want you to practice. You're behind glass. Customers are not allowed to direct the show. So if a customer comes in and he says, let me see your ass, I want you to say this very important line. So I lean in like Luke Skywalker and she's Yoda because I'm thinking oh she's really gonna drop some science right now and give me some advice and I wait for the line and she says this is not Burger King you can't get it your way that's the line she said yes I said, okay, well, I guess I'll give that a try. So I went on stage and I'm waiting and I'm waiting for an opportunity for someone to come in so I can try out this line. And I was working a six hour shift and nobody came in and finally at the end of six hours, I was standing there like this. (laughs) And this man comes in and he says, turn around. And I said, This is not McDonald's. <laughs> you think you can get a Happy Meal with that? The window slams down. I felt a little more confident. And then a minute later, happens again. A man comes in and he says, yo, yo, turn around. And I said, this is not Burger King. You you, you can't get it." any, way that you might want it that might work for you and he apologized and I thought wow okay maybe I can try this out on the street so that night I walk up and down Market Street (laughs) and it was just one creep after another and I just Blasting them like ISIS. And I say, What? I don't care if you didn't order the double whopper. Okay? Chicken McNuggets come in six, nine, and 12 pieces. Okay? Gordita Crunch? I don't think so. Wait your turn. And finally, the man that was Always harassed me, even pinching me on the ass sometimes. I said, This is not Burger King, okay? And no, we are not bringing back the McRib. <laughs> oh my God, I was sticking up for myself. I had a voice, I had done it. I was so excited to go into the Lusty Lady and tell Pat what I had done. And when I got there, she was gone without a trace. No explanation of what happened to her. And Pat was replaced by Vivian. (laughs) And Vivian was mean. The first thing she did was to get rid of the sign in the lobby that said, please do not direct the show. She even got rid of the tampon bar. Then, she fired Octopussy and Polyester. And then she called me into her office and she said, Isis, you are here to please the customers, okay? They're not here to please you. I'm really glad that you're a busty, but you're also a woman of color, and I cannot have four women of color on the stage at one time. I'm not racist, okay? It's just the way it is. And also, I want to state that you're overweight by about 10 pounds, and you need to lose it and I'm suspending you, but I'd like you to not lose it in your breasts. Close the door on your way out. I was pissed. I could not believe she said that to me. I walked into the undressing room and I see Cheese Whiz is sitting there crying looking in the mirror, and I said, what's the matter? She said, Vivian said one of my breasts was higher than the other. And I said, oh, that is it. I am going to do something about this right now. I'm going to make Vivian disappear. She's going to be gone. And she said, wait, what does that mean? And I said, don't worry about it. It's the curse of ISIS. Just know that she's going to be gone. And I walked out and I went on the slim fast plan and I lost one, two, and then after five pounds, I said, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. I look fine the way I am. I look great even. I cannot do this. So I go back to the lusty lady. No sooner did I get there, I'm walking down the hall, and Cheese Whiz comes running over. Oh my God! Oh my God, ISIS! Oh my God! Oh my God! Oh my God! You did it! Oh my God! What, what are you talking about? And she said, Vivian is being arrested. She was caught embezzling. Can you believe that? Come with me. So I walk with her, and we go into Vivian's office, and Vivian is crying. She's got mascara running down her face. She's got an eyelash stuck to one cheek <laughs> and a police officer on either side. And I was like, oh, oh, oh. And she starts walking towards me, like dead man walking. And I say, hey, pimp. And she looks over at me and I say, um, this is not Burger King. You will never get it your way. Thank you.
0: Here to go. a Gold, ladies and gentlemen. Pimps, beware. Snap Judgment Live is going on tour. Philadelphia, Tampa, Miami, Boston. Feel all the fields. When the best storytellers in the world dig deep, backed by the beats of Bell's Atlas. Get tickets while you still can at snapjudgment.org. And when Snap returns, he made one of the most popular shows ever. But what made him? Find out. the Snap Judgment Performers episode continues, stay tuned. From WNYC, welcome back to Snap, the Performers episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and you've seen the magic on stage, on TV, on film, at the concerts. We all want to know where it comes from. What are we tapping into? And our next guest, Neil Brennan, he's a writer, director, comic. Neil is best known as the co-creator of The Chappelle Show. But he strips away all of his veneer in his new one-man show, Three Mics. We bring him into the studio to speak with Lena Macitsis. Snap Judgment.
4: Yeah. Uh,
2: Manoli, we're good on levels, right? Okay, great. First of all, this is for Snap Judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what we're trying to pull off. Okay. We have tape of you doing the show at Largo, and then we Do you, probably... want, me
4: to, you want me to tell the dad story, though, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well,
2: okay. So we're going to actually cut between you telling me the story and then a couple um, stand-up segments from that the sounds actual great. tape. Yeah. So do you mind just setting up for me what, like, first of all, what the premise of the show is and how you arrived to it?
4: Yes. Um, my name is Neil Brennan. I am a comedian. The premise of the show is that I put three microphones on stage, seven feet apart, and I basically alternate between the three microphones. How are you? You good? All right, so I don't know if you know the premise of the show, Uh, it's three mics. This one is for like one-liners, just jokes I've written over the years, couldn't find a place for them, maybe I tweeted a couple of them. Um, But so yeah, for an example, when someone says I think of you as family, I assume they're gonna scream at me for something that happened 15 years ago. (laughs) It's kind of hard. I'm not a one-liner comedian so I basically, I spend the most time to the right at the stand-up mic. Gold diggers, do they exist? What do you think, they exist? Not as much as you think. You know how I know? I have a little bit of gold. Yeah, men assume that there's gonna be like a gold digging system in place. Like every accomplishment by men in human history was to impress women. I'm sure like Thomas Edison invented the light bulb and they were like, Edison, this is gonna change the world. And he was thinking, like, and wait till these hoes see it. <laughs> this mic is for personal true stories. Like, it's not gonna be hilarious. I'll pepper them with, with jokes. So just be ready for that. So, uh, so I'm depressed. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, but not like written. No, it's not funny, depressed. It's like, it's clinical. You know, I had, I've had it as long as I can remember, like from when I was a little kid. Um, I'm, I don't know if you know anything about me. I'm the youngest of 10 kids. Yeah, I don't know if you know anything about, uh, kids. Um, <laughs> or math, but that's too many kids. It was like growing up in a juvenile detention center, pretty much. Yeah, and uh, my father was a a violent alcoholic. You know, that's my parents are old. Like they're from, they literally born in the Depression. You know what I mean? But look, my father was from really hard scrabble surroundings. Born in 1930, he was one of thirteen kids. Immigrant parents from Ireland. His twin died when he was six months old, and. At a certain point, they put my father up for an adoption. So a family came and took him for a test drive and then brought him back. Just insane. So, so yes. Yeah, so he was violent alcoholic, and he, but he was also, even kind of worse, was a narcissist. Um, and I don't know if you've dealt with narcissists before in Hollywood, I don't know if they have them out here. Um, <laughs> but it's all about them, you're not even there. I don't mention this in the show, He was, all right, a couple anecdotes. He was diagnosed as a clinical narcissist. And uh, so you know what he did. He called us all individually to tell us that he was a clinical narcissist. One by one. Yes. (laughs) Another time I broke my arm and uh, needed to go to the hospital. How old were you? 10. And my dad uh, ate dinner before he took me to the hospital. No. So I just had to sit there. And with a broken arm, I think I was 20 maybe when I wrote for um, all that on Nickelodeon. I'll hold for applause. Um, And then me and Dave Chappelle wrote Half Baked, and that was good. So, but these were like good things where like it's not a good movie, but um, these were good things. Like they felt good, you know. Like it was I was kind of staying ahead of the depression, Um, and that worked for a while. And and then Half Baked came out. Oh um, man. It's, it's kind of a rude awakening. Um CNN said that Dave's career was over and his mom <laughs> saw that. So that was pretty rough. I think the New York Times said shame on Dave and Jim. Pretty pretty scathing. But my father was such a narcissist that he was like mad at me for it. Like I'd somehow made him look bad. And I even asked him. I was like, "You weren't proud that your son got a movie made?" And had his name on a movie screen? He's like, no, not really. I was like, okay. Uh. But anyway, so I started, I started. Uh, I knew I was sort of like, had to make a change because I think we'd sold a pitch and I was driving up La Brea and I heard about the pitch and I was just like, I was numb. And I started crying because I was numb. I was like, okay, I'm not, I'm no longer staying ahead of it. I was like, I got to go on antidepressants. So, um, and I would still come across to people because of the depression, I would still come across as cold, or indifferent, or uh, you know, bored, or just bummed. Um, but you know who liked it? Black dudes. Black dudes <laughs> loved it. I'll tell you why. Because they'd be like, they'd be like, Neil, man, you don't give a fuck. And I wanted to be like, it's because I'm sad. <laughs> and then Chappelle show took off, and. He, my dad, basically came back like Don King, like only in America. Um, but I was like, no, I'm good. I basically said, I don't, I don't like you. I don't think you're a good person, and said you can't lord your money over me like you do my brothers and sisters because that was sort of his thing. <laughs> then he started getting sick. He had leukemia, and everyone told me, you know, you got to make it right. You got to make it right. So. I took their advice and I wrote him an email, itemizing all the things that I didn't appreciate about him or about our relationship, and also a bunch of things that I did appreciate. And I and I didn't hear back from him. And then and and then, I think nine months after I sent the email, I got a voicemail from him, and he sounded super reedy voiced and sick. And he said, "Hey, it's me. I've read. I never checked that email address. I just checked it, and saw your." email and I gotta say pretty fair so we so I called him and we talked and 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 uh, we there was rapport he said something about cancer he said you know everyone says I'm fighting cancer I'm not fighting it like I'm it's I it's ravaging me and I said you know I was like dad you know Christopher Hitchens said that same exact quote and he was like, oh, I I love Christopher Hitchens. I was like, he's like, I love that book, God is Not Great. And I was like, so like we kind of connected over that, for instance. And we spoke a few, few more times after that. And then he started, and then I got a call from my sister and she said, it's not looking good. You should come to Chicago and say goodbye. So I went to Chicago, hopeful that things were on the mend.
2: Were you sad, scared? Were you other things, too?
4: More than anything, I was always curious as to how I was going to react. I would see people's parents or friends or family members die, and they'd be devastated. And i always feel like, I don't think I'm going to be devastated. But there's also a good chance I will be devastated at the fact that I never got to have a good relationship with them. So I went to Chicago, and... Hung out in his hospital room, and I got and within five minutes he was like trying to get me to talk shit about my brothers. I was like, "God, man, like just be a decent person. Like, it's, you're like home free. Just be decent for the next three days," because um, I was going to pull the plug. Okay. Um, that, and I just it just it was a reminder. Like, oh, just a, he's just like a he's a scorpion. So a couple of days later, I was I was getting ready to leave, and my sister called me and she's like, "Hey, did you tell Dad you didn't want to be in his will?" And I was like, "Uh." Probably not, you know, what? <laughs> I was like, let me guess, I'm not in it? And she's like, yeah, you're not in it. I was like, okay. She's like, but we, we're going to get a lawyer down here. He wants to change it. You'll be good. So I go down to the hospital room, and he's like, Neil, do you remember you know, telling me to take my money and shove it up my ass? And I was like, I wouldn't say something that hacky, but yeah, I remember the, <laughs> the sentiment for sure. And uh, so we sat there in a bit of a standoff, you know, because he wanted me to grovel. I was like, I'm not gonna grovel for money. Like, I'd rather you give me money than not, but I, I'm, I can't grovel for it. And, um, and we kind of left it open. And he fell asleep. He basically just like put my hand on his forehead and say goodbye for what would be the last time. He died a few days later. And the following week, I got an email on my phone, and it said, the will of Daniel J. Brennan. <laughs> And so I opened it, and I'm scrolling through it, and it said, my son Joe gets one-tenth, my daughter Sheila gets one-tenth, on and on, and it got to me, and it said, my son Neil can take care of himself, he gets nothing. It was a shot. It was painful, It was. it was just a flick in the back of the ear, like, if you're so great, then you're not getting any of this. When when things had thawed between us, I was talking to him on the phone one day, and I said, you know, Dad, I feel like you didn't love us. And he was like, yeah, you're right. I didn't. Which is awful, but it was actually good because my whole life I felt like, I don't think... My dad loves me. And everyone would go, oh no, of course he doesn't. And I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure he doesn't. Like, cause, you know, love's elemental. You can sense it. It's heat or wind or getting tickled, you know. So for my father to say, I don't love you was both devastating and liberating. Cause it meant I have clinical depression, but I wasn't crazy.
0: Thank you, Neil Brennan. Neil Shell, three mics. You can see it for yourself on Netflix right now. We'll have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Lena Masitzis and Mark Ristich. It's about that time. But if you missed even a moment, subscribe to the amazing Snap Judgment Storytelling Podcast on whatever phone device thing you have. Snap was produced by all the sorcerers in all the lands. Wave your wand at Mark Ristich, Pat Mercedes-Miller, Anna Sussman, Joe Rosenberg, Nancy Lopez, Davy Kim, Renzo Goria, our Get Fresh crew, Eliza Smith, Leon Morimoto, Teo Ducat, and Jasmine Aguilera. And if you're thinking, Glenn, Glenn, I need my own magic lamp. You are in luck. I have one for you at snapjudgment.org. Go there and I'll get you the hookup to unleash your own genie and tell your own story. snapjudgment.org And this is not the news. No way this is the news. In fact, you could sneak up on a New York pimp, flash a camera all up in his face, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC.